The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. Looking to refresh your closet, home or beauty routine this spring? Walmart's got all the stylish goods in one stop. From chic new looks and the latest makeup to quality furniture and tableware. Go to walmart.com slash now trending. That's walmart.com slash now trending for the hottest fashion, home and beauty finds. Your style at Walmart. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. What can Viking poetry reveal about the era it was written in and the people who wrote it? And why are ships, love and death some of its most recurring themes? Judith Yeshk, Professor of Viking Studies at the University of Nottingham, and Caroline Larrington, Professor of Medieval European Literature at the University of Oxford, shared their expert insights with Matt Elton, tackling listener questions and reading excerpts from some of their favourite examples of Norse writing. The first voice you'll hear after Matt is Judith. I wanted to start, first of all, with some very general context for people who might not know very much about the subject. When and where are we talking about when we talk about um, Viking poetry? When did it happen? Yeah, well, well, there's two things. I mean, poetry in a Scandinavian language we have evidence for from about the 4th century onwards up until the present day. And in some ways, there is some continuity between that very earliest poetry and poetry going right up at least until the the Reformation and often later. So when we're talking about Viking poetry, we're talking about two things. We're talking about a small amount of poetry that we can confidently say was actually composed and written in the Viking Age, which is mainly poetry and runic inscriptions. Then we're talking about poetry that we're fairly confident was composed in the Viking Age, but wasn't written down until later when the Scandinavians learned the art of writing manuscripts. Um, There we're talking about skaldic poetry. And the third thing we're talking about is a form of poetry known as Eddic poetry, which was only written down in, in after the Viking Age in the Middle Ages. But we think at least some of it has its origins in the Viking Age. And the Viking Age, uh, you'll get different answers from different scholars, but uh, I would normally give it a generous date range of about 750 to 1100. And then the manuscripts we're talking about are mainly from the 13th century and later. Lovely. And we've had we've asked listeners and visitors to our social media pages for questions on this subject. And as you can imagine, we've had a huge number of responses, actually, which is great. Um, so I thought along the way I could just throw in some of those um, to run past you both. The first one, I suppose, really is C.E. Healy 92 on Instagram wants to know how wide do you think the audience for poetry was and was poetry reserved for the elite or only some sections of society? This is, I think, where we have to begin by distinguishing between the two types of poetry that Judith mentioned in the first instance. And scholars of Old Norse literature would say 
the division between scaldic poetry and eddic poetry isn't quite as clear-cut as we might make it sound when we're talking about it today. But basically, scaldic poetry is complicated, intricate. It depends on rhyme, half-rhyme, assonance, alliteration, all kinds of riddling metaphors and sometimes sentences that are broken up and stuck into the middle of other sentences. And in comparison, Eddic poetry is much more like the alliterative poetry that we have in Old English and which goes through into Middle English as well. And that's a fairly simple alliterating four-beat line. And I think it's probably reasonable to guess that people could generally almost everybody could understand Eddic poetry and many people could probably compose in it extempore. It's not really very difficult to produce Eddic verses. But Scaldic poetry, and I'll hand over to Judith for this, is much more difficult. It's not only difficult, but it's also the, the interesting one of the interesting distinctions on the whole between Eddic and Scaldic poetry is that Eddic poetry is largely anonymous and Scaldic poetry is largely attributed to named poets, which I think suggests something about the, the different social status of, of those two kinds of poetry. And with anonymous poetry, there's always the question, uh, are you just talking about one poet having composed that poem, or is the poem something that's gradually evolved, uh, perhaps in an oral or even a scribal tradition? So it sounds like these two forms are doing slightly different things for different audiences. Is that fair to say? It's very hard because the Eddic poetry was written down so much later than, than the time at which we guess it was composed. It's quite hard to work out what kind of audience it could have been composed for. We have plenty of uh, accounts in the sagas of named poets reciting their scaldic verse in front of rulers. But we don't really have accounts of people reciting Eddic poetry, except in certain kinds of sagas, which are largely fictional anyway. And so we can't be sure that the verses that are being recited in this particular context are at all historical, and they're not just being made up by the author because there's a prophetess, let's say, who needs to prophesy. She makes a prophecy and somebody responds in verse. Now, we don't really believe that that's a historical situation at all. It's entirely fictional, and probably the verse isn't very old. But it's, it's the case still in Iceland today that people can absolutely extemporize verse in ballad meter, which is a fairly straightforward kind of, of meter. And I guess people in English can probably make up verse off the cuff in, in a very simple meter as well. And I suspect that they probably could with Eddic poetry. There was a point, uh, I suppose, about 30 years ago when the suggestion was made that perhaps women were particularly good at Eddic poetry because they didn't have to have any kind of specialist training to do it. And perhaps these anonymous voices were the voices of women, people who were excluded from the kinds of systems of uh, patronage and preference that uh, determine the scaldic poet's career. Given, given the, the difficulties and the problems of tracing, tracing these sources and sort of the, the difference in time period, can we tell anything about the ways in which people who composed or performed poetry were regarded at the time? 
Well, certainly in, in the case of scaldic poetry, the scalds themselves uh, frequently, these are poems designed for public performance before the the ruler and his court, and they will either be uh, not so subtly hinting that they should be paid um, or indeed thanking uh, the ruler for, for his generosity. There's endless references to the generous ruler. And, and from some of the, the saga accounts, uh, that generosity, we're told, can, might consist of a whole ship, uh, which would be, I think, a very expensive gift for a poem. And we've also had a, a few questions about whether they were famous poets at the time. It's hard to tell who was famous at the time because uh, the ones that survive particularly to the modern day um, may not have been the most famous at the time. I, mean, I think the one that everyone would think of most would be Eitl um, on the kind of 10th century Icelander who has his own saga, which is uh, chock full of of his own poetry, so uh, I don't know what Caroline thinks. I would suggest Bragi, actually Bragi the Old, who seems to be one of the earliest poets who is recorded as a named poet, and whose name perhaps coincidentally turns out to be the same as the god or one of the gods of poetry in some of the mythological writing. So it may be that he's somebody who was famous enough to become a god. He's not named as a, a god in the mythological poetry, but he certainly turns up in a, a 13th century treatise on mythological poetry. And that makes it sound perhaps as if um, he might be somebody who turned from a, a human poet into a kind of divinity. He is mentioned in one poem, but there he's not particularly, or somebody with his name is mentioned in one mythological poem, but there he's not associated with poetry particularly. I wouldn't call him the Viking Chaucer. <laughs> I don't think he's anything like Chaucer. He was, as far as we know, I mean, he, he lived around the year 800, or that's what scholars think anyway, and he was a Norwegian, which is interesting because the vast majority of our surviving poetry uh, seems to have been composed by Icelanders. I just want to pick up something we talked about then without sort of any reference to um, it. People becoming gods isn't something that necessarily happens these days. How might that have happened? What does that mean in, in this context? I suppose what it means really is that the the theories which were propounded in in the Christian period to explain why people had believed in pagan gods in the first place had there were two possible options. And the one was that the pagan gods were diabolical. They're a bunch of demons sent by Satan to mislead people. But the other very popular theory was that they were just extremely clever humans who, in effect, bamboozled their contemporaries through their superior knowledge of technology and magic and various skills into worshipping them. And so this is a process called euhemerism after a a Greek philosopher who thought of this particular process. And it, it saves quite a lot of time, really, if you can assume that the gods don't really exist. They're just very good at telling stories about themselves and impressing people. We might think of the way that Roman emperors got turned into gods and, and worshipped after their death. And Brahe certainly was very clever because his poetry is fiendishly difficult. <laughs> so I think he fits that model it would be good at this point, I think, to delve into some of the examples of the kind of things we're talking about. I wondered if there's any specific examples that you'd like to highlight or that you think are particularly interesting. 
Well, I've brought along here a poem called um, Helga Krither Hundingsbane in Fury, or the first poem about a, po- a, a hero called Helgi, the slayer of Hunding. And I thought it might be nice just to read this one verse, uh, stanza 27 in his poem, which describes sailing off on a battle expedition across the sea. And I thought I might read it in Old Norse first and then read a, a translation in English. So this is the sound of Helgi's expedition setting out on a fine day to go and kill some neighbours. Bad aura imer, och jarna glimir, brast rund vid rund, rero vikingar, eisendi gek und öthlingum, lovdungs floti lundum fjarri. And what that is in English is, there was the splash of oars and the clash of iron. Shield smashed against shield, the Vikings rode on. Hurtling beneath the nobles went the leader's ship far from the land. So you can hear there, I think there's a little bit of rhyme in that, as well as quite a lot of alliteration and quite a lot of the sense of the ship moving very fast, hurtling across the water. And then the shields clanging together as the shields we imagine on the side of the long ship rattling as the, the ship gets up speed. But you can also hear that it's, it's not very complicated. It mainly gets its effects from rhythm. And it's one of the, I think, the, the best verse in the whole of Eddic poetry for describing what it was like being on one of those sea voyages. This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Daylight saving time is once again upon us, as is the debate about whether it's truly needed or not. But if you're hiring, it really doesn't matter, because even though it may feel as if your day is longer, it won't help you find qualified candidates any sooner. There's only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. Once you post your job, ZipRecruiter sends it to 100 plus job sites and then uses smart technology to find people with the skills and experience to match the position. So spring forward with ZipRecruiter. Four out of five employers get a quality candidate within the first day. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash extra. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash extra. That's incredible. There's such a sense of atmosphere from that. You really can imagine what it was like. In the next verse, a bit of a storm blows up. So then it all becomes rather alarming for the Vikings. But at that point, there's real self-confidence. Well, it's funny, I have a very similar example, but from Scaldic poetry, and, and it would be interesting to kind of compare these two because they are in a different meter, they use different literary techniques, yet the theme is very similar. Now, the poem that Caroline read, Helgi, uh, the poem about Helgi Hundingsbani, we don't really know when it was composed. Um, this one I'm going to read, we do know, we're fairly certain it was composed in the mid-11th century, there was a kind of flowering of poetry, particularly about sailing, um, by various Icelandic poets who were propagandists um, and historians for the kings of Norway. This is a time when the kingdoms were just developing, and it was also a time when ship technology was developing very quickly, and what we think of as a classic Viking ship, the kind of very long, narrow scathe a warship with possibly 70 or 80 men on board that's that's the kind of ship we're talking about at this point um, so this is by an Icelandic poet called uh, Arnor Thordarson and it's about King Magnus the Good 
the the son of Saint Olaf. Um, he was a very young uh, king. He died when he was twenty four. But this is an expedition he was making to Denmark in around ten forty two, and it just describes him sailing along the Norwegian coast. Liotu dreifa lifting utan laudri bivvis gol itrauda. Scaldic poetry is notoriously difficult to translate, so here I'm going to rely on Diana Whaley's translation uh, into prose. She's not attempting a poetic translation. Foul surf surged in against the after deck and the helm of the warship. The red gold shuddered. The powerful hound of the fir tree pitched the rushing ship of fir. You steered sturdy prows from the north past Stavanger to the realm of the Danes. Currents shuddered in front. The mastheads of the storm steed glowed aloft like fire. Now there's several things you need to kind of be aware of when listening to that. Um, first of all, there are a couple of kennings. We haven't mentioned kennings yet. Um, we'll probably have to talk more about kennings. These are roundabout ways of referring to things. So the powerful hound of the fir tree, it's like a dog attacking a fir tree. It's a kenning for the wind. And you can imagine the mast of the ship like a tree and the wind shaking it as if it was a, a dog attacking it. And then the uh, the storm steed is a slightly unusual kenning for ship. But also, um, there are little details here which are really interesting. There's quite a lot of technical terminology about different parts of the ship. Um, and this poetry is, is actually really useful information for how ships were built and sailed in the 11th century. And we're told twice about something glowing red gold or glowing like fire. And this is a king after all. And we're told whether it's true or not, I'm not entirely sure, but we're told that their ships were often decorated with gold. So they, they really kind of made an impact as they're sailing. And then there's also deep geographical detail here. He's sailing um, from the north past Stavanger in southwest Norway. He's heading towards Denmark. So th this is... Um, the rudimentary historian here, um, recording the actual expedition of this king, where he's going, uh, but also conjuring up uh, a picture of what it's like to actually sail in one of these ships. That was fascinating to hear both those examples. Thank you so much for doing that. It's interesting that you chose examples that depicted broadly similar thematic um, concerns. Is that a coincidence or does that tell us something more generally about this? I think it's probably a coincidence because I chose my verse because it's the probably most people's most profound association with Vikings is that they hurtle across the ocean on ships. But actually, the vast majority of Eddic poetry is conversation between two different people, or sometimes there may be uh, a monologue. So mine is a fairly atypical example. Most of the poems, the the mythological poems are very often conversations between one or more divine figures. Perhaps they're outlining wisdom, perhaps they're having an argument with other people in which they're 
being kind of mutually rude about each other. Or perhaps um, in one case, it's simply telling a story, but the story is told through dialogue between characters like Thor and Loki, so well known to us now from the, the Marvel universe, for example. And in the heroic poetry, quite often, not all of the action, but quite a lot of it is, again, conversations with people. I'm inviting you to my hall. Should I go to the hall? Do not go to the hall. It's a bad idea. No, I must go to the hall because if not, I will look like a coward. You should not have come to the hall. They have come to the hall. Now we're going to attack them. So it, it slows down the action in some ways. But it means that when you have a moment of action, when the third person narrator steps in and tells you what the fighting looked like, then it makes quite a contrast between the, the kind of dialogue heavy bits of the, the rest of the poetry. It was a coincidence. Uh... But it's also interesting to look at where they overlap. But most Goldig poetry, the majority of the surviving poetry at any rate, is from this period between about 950 and 1100 when there's this flowering of praise poetry as uh, the kings of Scandinavia are growing into their power. And the actual topics, there's only so many things you can praise a king for. You can praise him for being generous. You can praise him for winning battles. And you can praise him uh, for being an effective sea captain. So the interest of the poetry is much more in the way it's done. Uh, and and there's these complicated, the complicated diction, the strict use of meter uh, and alliteration and so on, and not so much in what they're actually saying. So I'm afraid that quite a lot of uh, the Scaldic poetry is in fact <laughs> about about these very things, battles, sailing, and kings generally and, and what they, they got up to. Although um, the genre is much broader than that, um, certainly, but that, that's the kind of quintessential Scaldic poetry when we think of it, where you have a named poet, you have a a named ruler who is being praised either during his own lifetime, which is a bit tricky because you have to be careful what you say in the poem, or after his death, and then probably just as tricky because you're talking to his his heirs and and <laughs> you have or to be possibly his enemies, possibly his enemies being well. responsible for him no longer being around. Yes, exactly. so politically very awkward moment that transition, isn't it? Yeah, you mentioned kennings. Were there any other techniques that we should know about in these forms? Well, there's different kinds of kennings for a start. Sometimes they are metaphorical. Um, sometimes they allude to mythology. And this is another area where there's overlap between Eddic and Scaldic poetry, because Eddic poetry tells us the myths. It tells us the stories uh, that were recognised as myths. In Scaldic poetry, doesn't most of it doesn't there's there are some exceptions but most of it doesn't actually tell the stories <laughs> it but within the kennings it alludes to those myths so um there's a huge body of mythological knowledge hidden away in in scaldic poetry so there's metaphorical there's mythological kennings there's what's called true kennings when thor is called son of odin it's a roundabout way of referring to thor but um, it's true, <laughs> unlike the metaphorical ones. And then there's another uh, kind of diction that we call Haiti, which I suppose is uh, as a poetic synonym. So it's a synonym for something that tends only to occur in poetry and, and not in normal speech. So those are the main forms of poetic language. And uh, you do have uh, simple kennings in Eddic poetry as well as Haiti. 
Yes, they tend not to run to three or four different kinds or of seven. nouns, or seven indeed in the worst case scenario, in the most complex kerning known to man or beast. Um, in Eddic poetry, you get something like a, um, because the, the, one of the fundamental conceptual ideas in, in the formation of old, of old Norse poetic metaphor is that basically the people are trees. Um, people were, humans were created from trees, from driftwood or from wood found on the seashore in one account. And so you can call a man an apple tree with arm rings or an apple tree with a sword or a maple of, um, of usually of a sword again. And a woman can be an elm wearing linen or an elm of jewellery. So those are very simple kind of two-part expressions. We also get a little bit in Eddic poetry the idea that battle is a kind of storm of the Valkyries, these mythological women who allot victory in battle following Odin's commands or sometimes not following Odin's commands. And they ride in the sky over the battlefield and grant victory or cause defeat. And they, there are lists and lists of the names of these women. So the the storm of Gundel can be a term for a battle, and Gundel there is a, a Valkyrie name. So what you need to do there is you need to have that knowledge because you need to know that Gundel is a Valkyrie in order to understand that storm of Gundel refers to battle. Um, and that's why Scaldic poetry in particular, but also much Eddic poetry, requires that kind of knowledge of people. We've had a few questions um, in about thematic concerns and themes. Um, Idle Vignette on Instagram asks, what type of imagery was most common and how did it tie to their culture and society? And Amanda Rarely Mandy asks, what themes of love and family did they explore? That Two I was, rather different questions, <laughs> yes. I think. Um, I'm going to go for the love and family one because I think that's easy. They're not normally that keen on love and family. I think in the Eddic poetry, usually if if there's a love, it's a doomed love. So very often you'll have um, a hero like Sigurd Fafnisbani expressing falling in love with somebody, but he doesn't spout love poetry. So it's usually after the hero has been killed that we hear the women who love them mourning for them when uh, Sigurd has been killed, murdered treacherously by her brothers. His wife, Gudrun, says that he towered above other princes as a stag towers above other animals and that he rose out of the grass like a leek out of other grass. He was a precious stone. So you get some very striking imagery in Eddic poetry, but usually in the context of loss rather than celebration. Though in one poem where I'm afraid another woman has just been, in fact, a Valkyrie has just been awakened by Sigurda from the enchanted sleep that Odin has put her into. There's a wonderful piece of verse in which she wakes up for the first time in, we might imagine, hundreds of years and greets the day and says, hail to the day, hail to the sun, hail to the gods, hail to the goddesses, hail to all the elves. And hail to the hands that have just awoken me, and may they always be blessed. And it's the one piece of Eddic verse which the composer Richard Wagner actually takes across into his opera, the opera Siegfried, in fact, the third in his cycle, um, Der Ring des Nibelungen. 
And it's the one piece of verse that translated into German he keeps intact. So there's some wonderful effects around passion, but not really much that we could describe as, as love poetry in the Eddic verse at all. And if family verse is very much more, I love this person, but now they're dead. Well, can I just jump in there uh, about love? Because as I said a moment ago, a lot of scaldic poetry, uh, it can sneak in interesting ways of looking at things in spite of being very, very formulaic and predictable. And uh, one of my favorite poems brings together those two motifs of being in love and Viking ships. And uh, um, I'd, lo- I'd love to, if it's okay, I'd love to read it to you and then talk about it a little bit. Um, it's an Icelandic poet called Hatfreder Ottarsson, who lived in, in the kind of late 10th century mainly. Um, and several of these poets are known to have had very unsuccessful love lives. <laughs> um, but this is uh, him on describing or explaining his love for his girlfriend. Thicki mér a seg thekki thun isunga gunni sem flei brautir fljóti flei meðal tvegja eia. En þás sér a ságu söms í kvinna flámi sem skrátbúin skríði skeið með gildum reyða. And I tried to translate this in, into a, a form of English that captures some of the the technical aspects. So there's a certain amount of assonance um, in here and a little bit of alliteration as well and uh, the syllable counting of skaldic poetry. I thought when I caught sight of the gun of fine linen that a boat was floating on the sea between two isles and the seam saga gleamed amidst the stream of women like a well-equipped warship with sail and golden tackle. The guy's comparing his beloved to a ship. But a really lovely, a really splendid ship, isn't it? And, yeah, and, and, you know, he, there's, there's technical terminology. So first of all, she's a, she's a flay, which is a kind of ferry-type ship floating on the flay roads. And then she ends up at the end of the stanzas, a scathe, what I mentioned earlier, the big Viking warship of the 11th century with gilded tackle. She, she's a goddess of the seam. Now, there's a pun there because the seam refers to the seams, the way her clothing was sewn together. But it's the same word is used for the nails that are used to make a ship when you kind of put the planks together. So she's a goddess of both the ship and her clothing. The, uh, her headdress evokes the sail, and then she's floating between two isles. Now, the word a, which means island, is often used in kennings for women. So she's standing out amongst the group of women. She's the most beautiful, the most glorious of all women. Um, and that's just, <laughs> at one level, it's, it's so trite. It's like you know, a young man today can't quite decide whether he's most more proud of his girlfriend or his car. <laughs> um, and yet it's also very, very beautiful. It's obviously the two most important things to him brought together into one thing. We should talk more about the thematic concerns, I suppose, and the subject matter. How do these kind of works deal with subjects of sort of death and mortality? Well, everybody is interested in death in the Viking world because it's it's coming for you sooner than you might expect. 
and perhaps one of the most interesting complexes that goes across both Skaldic and Eddic poetry is the idea of what happens to you when you die in battle. I've already mentioned the the Valkyries, uh, these women who ride above the battle and decide who is going to live and who's going to die. And it's absolutely vital to die in battle if you want to spend eternity in Valhalla, in Valhertl, as it is in Old Norse, with Odin, practicing your battle skills for when the day of Ragnarok comes, when the end of the world comes and the, the Jötna, the giants, march against the gods and the cosmic monsters are unleashed. And the human heroes are going to come out of Valhurt to fight on the side of the gods. Unfortunately, unsuccessfully, as we know, because the bridge that carries them is going to collapse and they're all going to plunge probably into some, either into the sea or into some kind of molten lava. But the, although it's, it sounds very glorious to go to Valhalla, we have um, some elegies for Norwegian kings who perish on the battlefield in which the, the kings are depicted as really quite disgruntled about having been taken off to Valhurt. And if we got time, I would quite like to read a little bit from a poem which is in an Eddic meter by the poet Eivindr Skalda Spittler Finsson. So this is a, a verse from a poem called Haukonamal. It's about the death of King Haukon. It's composed by a poet called Eivindr Skalda Spittler, which seems to mean something like plagiarizer or borrow from other poets, Eivindr Finsson. And in stanza 12, we have King Haukon uh, talking to the Valkyrie in a not particularly pleasant frame of mind. And what the king says is rather bitterly is, why did you decide the battle, the battle thus, Spearskurgel, that's the name of the Valkyrie, though we were worthy of victory from the gods? And Spearskurgel, Gerskurgel replies, we brought it about that you held the field and your enemy fled. Unfortunately, the king died in the process. And after that, the king still doesn't cheer up particularly in Valhurt. And he says he thinks that Odin has double-crossed him. And he's told he can put his weapons to one side. He won't need them at the victory feast. But he says that he feels it's not a good idea to step more than one foot away from your weapons in these circumstances. And then the poem wraps up with Avinder saying that um, the, the grey wolf, Fenrir, will be unleashed against the, the homes of men, that the end of the world will come before another so splendid king is born among men. So there's a wonderful sort of sense of impossibility. We shall never see his like again at the end of the poem. But I love the way in which nothing cheers Haukon up about the fact that he has ascended to this glorious hall. Yeah, and and 
just to show that skaldic poetry isn't all about kind of battle-hardened warriors, um, I want to bring in another king, uh, St. Olaf, that we mentioned earlier, who died in battle at, in uh, the year 1030 in, in Norway. And there aren't any poems showing him going to Valhut because he very quickly was venerated as a Christian saint, and he was a, a Christian already um, as a king. And my favorite poet is an Icelander um, called Sigvater, who was very close to, to King Olafur. Um, and uh, very embarrassingly for the poet, because the poets were supposed to be there kind of recording events so that they could compose their poetry and tell people about it. He was in Rome at the time uh, his king died uh, on the battlefield. And, and there's he, but he has uh, several lovely stanzas about it. I'll just tell you about one of them, which I think has one of the be- most beautiful lines in Skaldic poetry. He's heard about the battle and, and the death of Olaver, and he's also heard that there was a, a solar eclipse on that day. So uh, I won't read the poem to you, but I'll just say, uh, read the translation. Uh, again, uh, this is my own translation. People declare that no small wonder that the cloudless sun was not able to warm the gods of the steed of the prop. Those are warriors. Great was the portent concerning the king during that daytime. And here's my favorite line. The day did not achieve its beautiful color. I heard of the event at the battle from the east. Dagger navit lit So that that just uh, summarizes his feelings on the death of King Olaver. And then in a, in another poem, he talks about how the sloping cliffs of Norway used to laugh when Olaver was king, and now that Olaver is dead, the slopes seem to me much less agreeable. Um, such is my affliction. So he's, he's really emotional at having lost his king, even though uh, we do know that he sometimes composed poetry for rival kings, but um, on hearing about the death of Olaver, he, he's very, very sad. And there's some very lovely poetry composed by him in, in this scaldic style. It must be fascinating and so rewarding working with these kind of sources. It really is. Um, interesting uh, for me in particular I've always loved Edic poetry because I love stories and I have been fascinated since I was very young with the myths and the heroic legends of the north and even though there are questions about when these poems were actually composed they are the oldest written sources that we have for the, the great mythological tales that have come down to us Now, they're not set down in a particularly systematic way in the poetry. They're very often episodic or they're allusions, things that we don't know about. But they were the basis for the Prose Edda, which was a a poetic and mythographic treatise by the Icelander Snorri Sturluson, who composed this material in around 1230 or so. And he drew on skaldic poetry and Eddic poetry for his information about how poetry works. And lots and lots of the Scaldic poetry is actually preserved in in Snorri's great mythological treatise and poetic treatise. But for the first part of the treatise, though, which explains the mythology you need to know to understand the Kennings, draws very much on Eddic verse. And quite a lot of one of the most important poems, the Cirrus's Prophecy, which takes us from 
the very beginning of time, before the world was created, all the way through to doomsday. A lot of that is preserved, not solely preserved, but a particular version of it is preserved in Snorri's writing. And so for me, the fascination is it's a way to get to what the people thought, what tales they told about the gods, and what tales they told about heroes, very often heroes from a Germanic past that predates the settlement of Iceland, that takes place in Central Europe rather than Scandinavia quite often, and which has heroes among the Huns and the Goths and the Burgundians, not about Scandinavians at all. So the material is very ancient, even if perhaps the poems might have been composed a bit later. Yeah, I uh, my where I'm coming from is is slightly different in that uh, although I was trained in in Old Norse language and literature, I've kind of gradually become more and more fascinated by the Viking Age itself and how we study it, particularly since uh, the vast majority of our written sources were written down later. Um, and I mentioned runic inscriptions earlier, and I just love runic inscriptions because, especially rune stones, because they are thousand-year-old monuments that are still very often in their original place that someone carved, and they're unique. So the words on these monuments are the were thought by the person who carved the monument. Um, whereas in in manuscripts, the texts have often gone through several stages of scribal adaptation and so on, and there is a, there is at least one <laughs> uh, Viking Age monument with a complete scaldic stanza on it, um, and so that makes the link for me. And then uh, I've studied scaldic poetry for many years, and there, although most of it, with this one exception, survives in later manuscripts, I think there are good arguments for at least some of that actually being also direct evidence for the Viking Age, precisely because of the difficulty that Caroline was alluding to earlier. You have basically uh, stanzas of uh, eight lines of six syllables each, so 48 syllables. You have to have a very complex system of internal rhyme, both full and half rhyme. You have to have alliteration, and you uh, ideally want to incorporate some of this uh, special diction, this language we were talking about. So that's why a, a scald was worth a whole ship uh, if he could compose a really good poem. And to me, that style of poetry is actually designed for an oral culture which didn't yet have a way of recording events. They couldn't write things down, um, except in runic inscriptions, but th those don't work in quite the same way. Um, but they wanted to remember, as Caroline was saying earlier, remember people after their death. So the poet's job was to embody this in, in this poetry. And then people, we're talking about audiences, we don't know, but we assume that people did actually listen. And because of, of the structure of the poetry, it's quite easy to remember correctly, whereas Eddic poetry, you're more likely to remember the story, I think, um, uh, and there, there might be changes uh, in the actual text. So people remembered these, and then fairly soon afterwards, uh, writing came along and, and they wrote these down. So I, I think there's a kind of link to the Viking Age that I've been very fascinated by. I mean, it's complicated, and you can't assume that every scaldic poem is from the Viking Age, but it's lots of fun to try and work out whether it is or not. 
And we could talk about this for hours. We only have a few more minutes, sadly. We've had quite a few questions, including from Julia Yoga on Instagram. What would be a good first read for people who are interested in finding out more about this subject? Well, I would, of course, recommend my own translation of the Poetic Edda um, from Oxford World's Classics, um, the second edition, which was published in 2014. And that, I think, is a useful introduction to Eddic poetry in terms of an uh, an introduction that explains quite a bit about it and a translation of the most important mythological and heroic poems. It's not a poetic translation as such, but it does make an effort with alliteration and rhythm. And so that, I think, is quite a good starting place for actually reading the poetry. But uh, Margaret Clooney's Ross and Heather O'Donoghue have also written introductions to old Icelandic poetry, both of which are quite readable and accessible. I think if you want to start even earlier, just to show I'm not single minded, <laughs> um, I produced a little book called Viking Poetry of Love and War some years ago. As published by British Museum Press, and it's got pictures as well as snippets of both Eddic and Scaldic poetry, including some of the ones uh, that we've discussed today. Um, and so that's possibly for the absolute beginner. Well, that's been fascinating. Thank you both so much for your time and for hearing some of that um, original source material. It was amazing. Thank you so much. Before we go, um, is there anything else we've not talked about in terms of how people should see this material or how it you think gives us an insight into the time it was composed? I think one thing that's um, among the questions that I've just glanced at that the listeners have sent in is the question of how much poetry there is. And the answer to that is an enormous amount and much more scaldic poetry than Eddic poetry. But it's probably important to remember that, including prose as well, of course, Old Icelandic literature is the largest medieval literature that survived after Old French, way more of it than there is of Middle English. And a lot of that and a lot of the most interesting material in our view, of course, is poetic. So I think there's huge amounts of it that if you really get the taste for it, you can work your way through finding out about. I was quite intrigued by, there was a question, was poetry more important to the Vikings than other cultures? And that's a, Mm. of course, it's an impossible question because how can you compare? But it did remind me, I think it's an important point that, um, In the Viking Age, I think it's not just poetry. I think all aspects of rhetoric, verbal art, expressing yourself interestingly uh, was very highly valued. So poetry, um, the law in an oral culture uh, required similar kinds of knowledge and memory. They loved riddles and jokes, um, and they they all had crazy nicknames. There's something about... the oral art is is and and this is I think what eventually led to the sagas as well. So once they learnt the art of writing, they were so well versed in speaking and expressing themselves and doing things in an interesting way that the the writing of sagas just came naturally to them. And it's an art form, isn't it, of a culture that's on the move. You don't have to be sitting in the studio. You don't have to have a cathedral with walls that you want to paint. You don't have to have a loom or or a, a woodworking yard, you can do it anywhere. You can do it as as many of the poets 
claim to compose verses on the ship as it's making its way across the ocean to Iceland or on the edge of battle. And so that poetry takes in verses which are supposed to have been performed and composed in North America, in Greenland, in Byzantium, in the Mediterranean. It's a, a verse for, on the, along the rivers of Russia. It's a, an artistic form that goes anywhere. And that um, poet that we mentioned earlier, Eil Skatlagrimson, the Icelander, he's remembered in his saga for having composed his first verse at the age of three. Now, it's impossibly complicated for a three-year-old. There's another poem he composed when he was six, which I can quite believe that he composed when he was six. The three-year-old poetry is uh, not possible, but it just shows how you know how a really good poet was expected to be. This is what people valued is the ability to compose poetry. That was Judith Yeshk and Caroline Larrington speaking to Matt Elton. Judith is the author of books including Viking Poetry of Love and War, published by the British Museum Press, and Caroline's books include The Norse Myths, which was published in March by Thames and Hudson. Caroline's 2014 translation of the Viking Edda is published by OUP. And you can explore more Viking poetry for yourself by visiting skaldic.org. That's S-K-A-L-D-I-C dot org. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden. 